Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor. Securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. I'm Steve Marber, a certified financial planner and investment advisor with over 20 years' experience providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm Gordon Leppard, financial advisor with Richard Young Associates. It's good to be here today, Steve. Yeah, it's great to be here today, and we are excited to have you listen to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m., we're also streaming live on moneymd.net where you can click to click on us in the upper right-hand corner of the website and listen to us anywhere in the world. And also do check out our website, moneymd.net, where you can link to us and ask us your questions. We would love to hear from you. And uh, our podcast is are right there on the show, um, That's right. on the website, so you can click on it and listen to any shows. Anytime, um, anywhere. Anytime, anywhere. That's right. Going all the way back, uh, you know, to the beginning. So... Uh, you can also reach us directly by email at info at moneymd.net. Well, um, Gordon, you know, I think we have a great show lineup for the day. Um, we have some just interesting topics here right before Christmas, very timely, getting into next year and some things that you might want to think about for next year as well. So That's right, and uh, we're, we're missing someone today. We are. John is out on vacation Um you know, he's missing a great show. I don't you know. know what did, did he go to the North Pole to help sign out? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe that's what know. he's doing this morning. Who knows? I don't know. But you're right, Steve. We do have a great show. Uh, we've got some good topics lined up here. And uh, Yeah, and the first one we're going to start off with here, though, um, is the top ten retirement questions for couples. Um, you know, I mean, folks that are heading into retirement, a lot of times they miss some of the major planning issues going into retirement. They don't really ask themselves the right questions. And so this is a great article from Fidelity about the top 10 questions you need to ask yourself, you and your wife both, if you're married, before heading into retirement. It really is a good guide for your discussion as a couple. Exactly. You know, It kind of walks you through that, and uh, we're going to touch on uh, those questions. Then we're going to uh, move into yours with um, yeah. rising interest rates, you know. That's exactly right. What does rising interest rates mean to your investments? Um, you know, that's been the big topic here lately in the in the stock market and investments about interest rates going up. So what does that mean? What will that do to your investments? What will be affected? How does it change the way you invest? Well, we're going to delve into that and answer those questions right here this morning. And then we're going to finish up with uh, giving. And check out check out the charities uh, that you're, you're looking into giving to. Um, you know, check out their policies. Uh, make sure that the majority of the money that you are giving, putting toward this particular cause, is actually going to that cause. Yeah, exactly. That's a great topic. You want to, you want to know how to vet the charities that you're giving That's to right. this holiday season. Okay, well, we're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. And that is 2.8% of Americans' working age population were receiving Social Security disability benefits in 1994. So 2.8% in 1994, 
Today, that that percentage has increased to 5.1%. Not so quite doubled. Almost doubled. That is that's unbelievable. That's a huge increase, you know, in the past, um, what, 20 years, 21 years. Um, and it's a shame because, I mean, the system is definitely stressed now. And one of the big factors is all these folks that are, that are working age now that are collecting Social Security benefits. I doubt there's really twice as many people in wheelchairs you know, that are really fully disabled. So it's well, a problem. I, I think one thing that you've found is people that they, they've learned how to beat the system. Somehow. And, and then that's created somewhat of a mentality at times. And so, you know, it's just kind of rolled over. So uh, it, it is sad. And like you said, Steve, the system's stressed. Uh, we've got to find a way to, to fix that eventually. Yeah, no doubt. So, I mean, that, that's an issue there. So Social Security disability is... Uh, you know, become a bit of a problem. Hopefully, uh, along with all entitlement programs, <clears throat> you know, Congress will address that here after the election. You know, nothing's going to happen the next year. No, it's going to be it's going to be flat over the next. Hopefully, year. they'll they'll start addressing some of those hard issues because that's, that's sure. really getting out of five point one percent. You know, that's five people out of every hundred that they're collecting Social Security disability benefits that are our age, probably. You know, that are working age oh, folks. Nice. That's so. Right. Uh, it's a problem. Okay, so that's the fact of the week. Try not to be too depressing on you here. So, uh, But on a better topic here, the first topic we're talking about, the top 10 retirement questions for couples. This is an article out of Fidelity.com. And, you know, this is a great topic because um, you, you have to have an idea of what questions to ask, what things to look at when you're going into retirement. You know, and some, and some couples, they don't have these discussions because some, sometimes they don't know where to start. You know, so this, this is going to be a great guide for kind of uh, laying the groundwork for a good discussion like you were talking about. That's right. So you and your spouse, so you worked your, your, your long, hard, you know, working career here for many years. Retirement is fast approaching. So before you say so long to your working lives, it's a good idea to sit down together, make sure you're both on the same page when it comes to fulfilling your retirement dreams. Too often, though, couples discover that their views on the subject are dramatically different. Um, In fact, in a recent Fidelity survey here of 648 married couples, um, what they found was that 62% 62 of pre-retiree couples don't agree on the basic the, the basic questions here. One of them is their retirement age. When they're going to retire. Exactly. So over a half yeah. don't agree on that. So wow. They haven't talked about it. And these are folks that are already at retirement. Another 34% uh, differ on the lifestyle expectations, you know, once they're no longer working, meaning that they have competing views about you know, what they're planning to do in retirement. Or one's at the beach and the other's at the mountains. I guess so, you know. I mean, so, you know, that's a third. So there are some big disagreements out there about retirement among couples. And so long before retirement, you need to sit down as a couple for some meaningful retirement planning discussions about your finances and your lifestyle goals. You know, that would help you set the expectations to work as a team, to implement your plans, and enjoy this new stage of life together. Um, so you don't want to just wing this. You really want to have some meaningful discussions. So the question is, what what questions should you be talking about? What questions should you ask each other? Um, we recommend setting aside a time, maybe a date night, 
to honestly discuss the following 10 questions. So here's number one. All right. First one, uh, start with the at what age do you want to retire? You know, that's what you uh, touched on briefly just a moment ago. There's so many factors that go into this decision. Uh, some of them include when you can afford to retire, whether you'll have adequate health insurance programs uh, in place before Medicare kicks in, and which spouse should actually retire first. You know, women, they tend to reach the peak of their careers a little bit later than most men do. So they may not want to leave work just as they're, you know, hitting their stride and, and things are going well. They may not want to pull out of the, the sure. job market just then. Um, but, you know, they they also tend to have longer life expectancies than most men. And they may need additional financial resources uh, as, as things kind of come along. You know? Sure. Yeah, a lot of folks... Uh you know, want to keep working, you know, longer than, than their other spouse. And so uh, you got to know what age you want to retire. Well, that and if their health is still benefiting them to and allowing them to do so. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good question. The next one here on the list is, do either of you want to work in retirement? Um, you know, believe it or not, nearly half of pre-retiree couples that were surveyed don't agree on whether they should keep kind of one foot in the working world and work part-time right. while they're retired. Um, but your lifestyle expectations, um, you know, maybe your savings situation, you know, might require that one or both of you continue to work at least part-time. And in that case, it, you need to talk about who has the better earning potential, maybe the greater job flexibility to be able to do that. Today, I mean, more people are gradually cutting back on work over time rather than just stopping, you know, one day and retiring the next. Um, so it's a little bit different mentality today. You see people who are who are kind of uh, stepping into it slowly, working some part-time, maybe going back to doing some contract work. Right. And, you know, that strategy, in fact, <clears throat> may be helpful for a couple's financial and emotional well-being as well. I mean, sometimes... Plans to work in retirement can hit a snag, so you have to be prepared for that if somebody becomes ill or if you get, you know, you have to quit or get laid off. I mean, part-time jobs usually are the first to go, Yes. so you need to rec- be realistic and realize you may not be able to work as long as you want to in retirement. But still, it's it's important to understand and have an agreement on what you're planning to do as far as who's working in retirement if you're going to work part-time and keep going once you're retired. So that was question number two. You know, and it's great, like you said, too, to have some of those skills uh, and experiences to be able to fall back on uh, if needed for some of those contracting-type jobs. Number three, what type of lifestyle do you envision at retirement? You know, it's best to agree on this before you actually get there because once you jump out of the plane, uh, you want to make sure that the parachute's been packed correctly. You know, you're not wanting to have that conversation with your tandem partner on the way down. and that'll dictate, you know, your budget, uh, which will help, you know, drive your savings and planning strategies. Couples, they may have trouble agreeing on their lifestyle because it's hard to appreciate what it will actually be like to live on the amount of income you've earmarked for retirement. So, you know, that's something that you need to address before you get there. Yeah, like you said, I mean, you don't want to end up with one at the beach and one in the mountains. You know? <laughs> I mean, you know, are you going to travel in retirement? Are you going to stay right. home? Are you going to... You know, what exactly are you going to do? What kind of lifestyle are you going to live? That's a great question. And that does lead us up to our break here. But if you have questions for us, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. 
Or you can give us a call during regular business hours. Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, and we are continuing our discussion here before the break about the top 10 retirement questions for couples. That's right. Um, yeah, this is a great article out of Fidelity.com, and you know it really addresses the things that couples need to ask themselves before they... You know, pull the plug on their working career and make that big step that's kind of a, there are no do-overs once you get in retirement. That's right, and that's a great point, Steve. This is a discussion that you need to have before getting to that age. Exactly. And so there are some key questions here you need to ask yourselves, and you need to make sure you're on the same page if you're a couple um, about these questions. You know, one is simply, what age do you plan to retire? We talked about that. You know, there's a big percentage of folks that don't agree on that simple question before retirement, and that's pretty darn important. Um, in fact, over 62% don't agree on that's a huge percentage on what age they're going to retire. So you need to get that ironed out. The second one is, you know, do either of you want to work in retirement? You know, about half now are don't agree on that question, and they they a lot of people do want to work part time in retirement. So very important issue because that's going to impede what kind of things you do. And then the other one is what type of of lifestyle do you envision in retirement? You know, do you plan to travel? Do you plan to stay home? Do you plan to spend a lot of time with family? Um, you need to ask yourself those questions and, and know the answers as a couple. So the next one here on the list is where do you want to live? Um, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, are you going to be at the beach? Are you going to be at the mountains? That's right. Are you going to live together there? You want to yeah. make sure that you're on the same page you there for sure. You want to make sure exactly you're on the same page. I mean, do you want to move somewhere less expensive, perhaps warmer, or maybe you're considering purchasing a vacation home? I mean, these are tricky dis- decisions and quite often couples disagree here because one may want to stay close to loved ones and and be near the kids and grandkids the other one wants to set off on an adventure and maybe try something different you know in this case i mean couples may want to compromise and and take some affordable trips but you know coming back home to a base to spend time with family so you got to get on the same page there that and keep keep in mind too uh as you get older the upkeep of a place you know, if you have a really, really large place, you know, are you going to be able to maintain that or afford to be able to pay someone to help you maintain that? Exactly. That's a great point. Yeah. So the next question here, though, you need to ask is, what does your financial picture look like currently for retirement? You know, how much have you saved? How much are you going to be able to spend? And what are you going to be able to live off of in retirement? Um, lots of people are legitimately concerned about getting through the next 10 years or so in retirement. And, you know, they're really afraid of running out of money. Um, So the point here is you really have to have a plan. I mean, you got to understand where you stand, where you sit for retirement. 
going to retirement without a plan, that's like starting on a on a long road trip without a map or a GPS or anything. That's right. You know, you you got to have a map of how you're going to get there in retirement. So you need to sit down, figure out, you know, what are your what is your spending going to be? Where's your income going to come from? Are you going to tap your 401k? Um, three out of four pre-retirees do plan to use their 401k as a source of income. So where is all the income going to come from? Um, you know, it's important to, to make the most of your opportunities before you retire, too, and saving and getting ready for that. So you need to have a plan long before you retire. Um, we'd like to see folks, you know, 10, 15 years before retirement have a solid plan and have room to, to get on uh, on that plan before they actually pull the trigger. Yeah, in fact, I mean, if you're 50 or older, you know, there's catch-up provisions. You can put an extra $5,500 in your 401k plan. That's right. Um, up to $1,600,500 per year. Um, you know, you can top off your, your plan with after-tax money and roll that over to a Roth, as we've talked about before in retirement. So there are a lot of options in retirement. If you do a plan ahead of time. That's right. Know the state of your financial union, that's for sure. Number six, uh, have you created a retirement income plan? And, you know, all this is kind of flowing together and supporting each other. You know, the lifestyle that you hope to have will depend upon your income resources and how you uh, decide to tap them during retirement. Only 57% of pre-retiree couples surveyed say they have worked on the details of their retirement income plan. Now, you know, that uh, that other 43%, they could find themselves just kind of wandering around. And if you don't have a plan, like you said, Steve, you're going to end up somewhere you don't want to be. No. And, and that's a dangerous game to play. Yeah, I mean, if you're planning to live off Social Security or something like that in retirement, you better think again because that's not going to provide the amount of income you probably need. So take these things into consideration. Know your spending uh, plan what your asset allocation strategy should be, and do a prudent withdrawal strategy. You know, some people say, well, you know, gosh, I could afford to take out 7 to 8% a year. That's going to implode your portfolio more than likely. You know, make sure that you have a realistic uh, view of what you will be able to take out. And that's, all, that and that's all part of a good retirement plan. That's right. So that's a good one. All right, number seven here is, have you factored in the future, the future cost of health care? Um, you know, Fidelity estimates that a couple retiring in 2011, age 65, with no employer-provided health care coverage, they would need $230,000 wow. in savings, almost a quarter of a million dollars, and that was, heck, four years ago. Just to cover medical expenses. To cover the out-of-pocket medical expenses in retirement. Now, that's a daunting number, and and it's, you know, I mean, who knows what that's going to be. But, you know, any unexpected major health care expense, um, it can be devastating. And that's a top concern for people. Um, 59% of those surveyed said that's their one of their number one concerns in retirement. So plan together for how you're going to fund health care in retirement. Don't forget to factor any potential long-term care costs you know, or maybe long-term care insurance. Determine whether you'll have any uh, retiree health care benefits or you'll need COBRA insurance between the time you retire and the time Medicare kicks in, which is typically at age 65. So got to have a plan for health care costs. I mean, that can wreck your retirement. And, so, uh, and that COBRA coverage can be extremely expensive. That's exactly yeah, right. It can be very expensive. 
All right, number eight on our list. Do you know where all of your assets and important documents are? Now, this is something that I know we've heard John speak about but, uh, several times. We've talked about it on uh, other sure. shows, and this is very important. Uh, it's an extremely important uh, list that you, you need to know where they are, including providers, uh, account information for all your bank accounts, workplace savings plans, pensions, IRAs, mutual funds, brokerage accounts, especially life insurance policies uh, and annuities. Um, you know, however, the Fidelity survey found that only 14% of couples surveyed felt completely confident that they could both assume financial responsibility for their retirement finances. Uh, one strategy to help make it easier to manage might be to consolidate some of these accounts. Now, obviously, you can't consolidate your IRAs, uh, you know, with each other, but you can, you know, with some of your brokerage stuff. Number nine on the list, check your beneficiaries. Have you named beneficiaries? While spouses may automatically uh, be each other's beneficiaries on certain retirement savings accounts, you still need to designate contingent beneficiaries uh, in the event of your death. You also need to name primary and secondary beneficiaries on numerous other assets like your your house uh, and personal belongings. So, you know, it may be a good idea to sit down with a good uh, estate planning attorney in this type of situation, you know. Make sure your your will is up to date and everything is clearly spelled out. Yeah, those are great ones. I love to have an asset inventory list that includes where all what all your accounts are and the contact information and phone numbers and stuff for all of your password financial documents and stuff. Having it all on one page, right. I love that. That's the way I like to do it. And uh, you know what the balances are once a year. Update that. Um, and then naming your beneficiaries is very, very important. And the last one here on the list is, do you understand how your Social Security and Medicare benefits will work in retirement? Um, quite often, the timing, the way you receive, you know, any kind of government benefits depends on your what your spouse is going to do. So, you know, if they're still planning to work, you know, that may affect it. And uh, Social Security is one of the top three income sources for 31% of retirees that were surveyed. So you need to make sure that you're on the same page about how you're going to collect those benefits and how you're going to make it to whenever Medicare kicks in at age 65. Um, they're just some very important aspects of those. They're a lot more complicated than people think, you know. And for Medicare, you know, you need to know whether you're going to buy a supplement policy and, you know, whether you're going to take, you know, Medicare Advantage versus the standard Medicare Part A, Part B what it's going to cost. So, um, yeah, have a plan for all that. I mean, in retirement, the key is really having a plan and looking at these type of questions and stepping into it with your eyes wide open and you know, being on the same page. That's right, having that discussion. Yeah, so that's a great, great topic. So we will um, – let's squeeze in the question of the week here real quick. Yeah, the, the question of the week um, – Typically, taxes are lower in retirement than when working. Do you think my taxes may be lower in retirement than today? What do you think, Steve? Well, yeah. That's What's your the, crystal ball say right yeah, here? Who knows what tax rates are going to be in the future? You know, typically today, tax rates are lower in retirement. Um, somebody can, that's retired might be able to count on 15% federal, 5% right. state if they're here locally. Um, but, you know, with $19 trillion in debt, that could change. So if you're 40 years old and you're talking about what tax rates are going to be in 25 years, <laughs> you better plan on a lot. That's right. Um, More uh, than now. 
Exactly. So, uh, you know, that's kind of the key. You just got to plan for the worst and hope for the best. That's a good point. Uh, it's a great question. All right, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages and GNN News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with uh, Gordon Leppard, who's a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with me. And we are going to um, lead off our next segment here with a new topic, and that is what rising rates means to your investments. Um, this is a base of an article on U.S. News and World Report, and uh, you know, I mean, with interest rates, will interest rates rise this week is kind of the question, and I have to admit, we don't know the answer to that as of today, because, you know, when you're hearing this, it's going to be a couple of days from now, and we will know the answer to that. We're recording this a couple of days earlier than you're hearing this, but the Fed has is it did announce their decision this past Thursday. Um, in their, at the end of the Fed funds meeting. So we're going to know the answer to that here, um, you know, after this, sh- by the time this show airs. And it's highly anticipated, though, that they're going to raise a quarter of a point. Well, they've been talking about it for so, so long. I mean, eventually it's not a matter of if it's going to happen, it's just when. Yeah, so I, I suspect they did. Either way, though, more rate hikes are imminent over the next year or so as the Fed is just getting started raising rates. So the big question is, how does that affect your investments? You know, will it mean that bonds uh, might take a fall and that stocks are going to struggle for a couple more years while the Fed is 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 in this rate-rising posture, rate-raising posture? Um you know, we're already seeing some trouble in the high-yield junk bond market oh, yeah. this past week. Um, there were several junk bond funds that uh, had to liquidate their entire fund holdings. Yeah. So there's some big turmoil going on. Most people probably don't own those. Right. So they're a little more sophisticated, a little more risky in the bond field. We certainly don't have any of those for our clients. But there is some turmoil going on. So, But stock investors fortunately don't necessarily need to fear rising rates, but they should keep in mind there are some sectors and some types of investments that are going to do better than others in this environment. That's right. You know, investors have become accustomed to an environment of low interest rates here over, gosh, like you said, several, several years. The Fed, they've kept its uh, official interest rates near zero since December of 2008 to support the economic growth and bolster the U.S. economy in the wake of the global financial crisis. Now, the labor market uh, has improved significantly uh, with jobless rates somewhere around 5% in November and solid um, you know, job gains um, in, in each month here lately. So the central bank, they broadcast uh, its intentions to start hiking rates slowly in an attempt to move interest rates toward you know, what they say more normal rates historical normal rates are, uh, the consensus is that the Fed will increase the rates a quarter of a point around once per quarter unless the economy starts heating up, in which case uh, they could move maybe a little bit faster. You know, who knows? But on the other hand, if the economy softens, the Fed, they might put a pause on it for, for just a bit as well. 
Yeah, so it's a little uncertain exactly how they're going to proceed from here, but the kind of the consensus is, you know, probably a quarter down the road, a few months down the road, maybe right. in March's meeting, they're going to raise again. Right. You know, Not a quarter. it's a quarter point. So that's kind of what they're what they're set to do if nothing changes in the direction of the economy. So higher interest rates will certainly affect investors and consumers in a variety of ways from simple bank accounts, savings accounts, to home mortgages, and in your 401k. So here's what you need to know about how higher interest rates may affect your pocketbook and your portfolio. First, we'll start with the good news. (laughs) The good news (laughs) is your cash savings, your savings accounts, will earn higher returns. That's right. That's the good news. I mean, saving accounts of all stripes at banks and CDs, Returns have been negligible for years as the Fed's near zero interest rate policy has punished savers. Uh, That trend is about to change. I mean, while banks and CDs initially will move higher at a slower pace than the Fed short-term rates go up, savers will be able to generate a little more return on their cash. I mean, you can bet banks are going to delay raising rates as long as possible to make up for all the years of these non-profitable savings accounts that they've they've held. But eventually, competition is going to force them to start giving you more. Start giving you a little more on your money there. They're eventually, they are. you know. And when rates go up, I mean, they're going to be some winners and losers. The winners, obviously, will be savers or people who invest in CDs and money market accounts. The losers are going to be borrowers. Um, because the cost of borrowing is going to go up, you know, according to Tom Peters, who's a former board member at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia. So on the surface, I mean, it's really that simple. You know, of course, when it comes to stocks and bonds and other investments, it's going to get a little more complicated, and that's what we're going to come Yeah, and, and when we're looking at that, Steve, that's right. When you're, when you're looking at bonds, you know, bondholders with maturities over a couple of years, they could be hurt a little bit here. Um, some investors have stretched out to longer maturities of fixed income securities in an attempt to lock in a higher yield uh, in the current low-rate environment. Now, unfortunately for them, they probably didn't get much additional yield for tying their money up for years. And once the Fed raises rates a few times, they're going to wish they were uh, in a short, shorter-term investment where they could easily trade up because you know now they're stuck in that long long-term bond there. Once the Fed begins raising rates, the real losers will be people who bought 30-year fixed-rate bonds and some other long, longer maturity-type instruments like preferred stock. That's because uh, the value of those investments typically drop the most as rates tend to go up. Yeah, so bondholders have to be careful, and if you have long maturities, you know, you're going to be in a phase here where you certainly could be punished. Um, investors, so they may want to consider shifting their bond maturities. Um, an average bond maturity of, say, 20 years will see about a 13% drop if rates go from 3 to 4%. Wow. According to Greg Godsey, who's the managing director of, uh, of investments at 360 Wealth Management in Tampa, Florida. So, you know, like them, we have become very defensive in our position for bonds over the past couple of years in our company. Gordon, I mean, we don't, you know, have any long-term holdings at all. Right. We have very short-term durations, very short-term maturities. And so you have to get defensive in your own portfolios, like in your 401K, with shorter maturities, shorter durations. And that means that you're going to have more stability, lower volatility when interest rates do rise. And 
you know, on average, our bond maturities in our portfolios are only like a half year to three years on average mm-hmm. compared to most investors who tend to buy five to ten year maturities. You know, if you're in muni, muni bonds and you have those personally, usually those are really long term. Right. Those will certainly get hurt if interest rates start going up, you know, at any any rapid oh, for pace sure. at all. For sure. So you got to be careful there. Um, on the other hand, I mean, stocks can continue to gain, but investors may want to be careful to be diversified. Um, stock investors don't necessarily need to fear rising interest rates since stocks historically have done well about as often as they've suffered when rates have risen. So it's been kind of a 50-50. Nobody can really predict it. However, history does show that there are certain types of stocks that struggle when rates rise. The obvious losers tend to be um, preferred stocks, as you've already mentioned, um, since they have very long maturities, like a long-term bond that pay out a higher yield. Another obvious uh, loser would be companies that tend to be highly leveraged with a lot of debt, like like many of the utility companies or startup companies. Um, as rates go up, you know those companies have to refinance any maturing debt at higher interest rates. That tends to hurt their earnings. Oh, definitely. Another type of stocks that 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 stock that struggles when rates rise tend to be REITs, since they tend to be highly leveraged with a lot of debt. And often a lot of that debt matures pretty rapidly, so they have to refinance that at higher, higher rates. Um, you know, another reason those stocks stocks struggle though uh, is because they tend to be competing with fixed income investments for new investor dollars. So any type of stock, like a utility stock that pays a high dividend, anything that's a high dividend, tends to compete with fixed income investments. So, I mean, after all, I mean, why would you be you buy a utility company or a REIT yielding 4% if you could get that in a money market account? You wouldn't. Oh, you know? right. I mean, the, the, the risk there is totally different. Exactly. And you're right. Well, and, and on the bright side, while there may be some short-term volatility, you know, when the feds raise the rates, it's usually a positive sign uh, that the economy is heading in the right direction. In the previous prolonged cycles of interest rates uh, hikes from June 30th of 2004, to June 29th of 2006, the total return of the S&P 500 was about 15.5%. So, you know, that was a pretty good run there. Uh, rising rates will probably help bank stocks, <coughs> excuse me, especially community banks and those with small capitalization. You know, one of the reasons for this is that when rates rise, banks will they'll make more money as they can attract more deposits and have more room to squeeze a profit out of the uh, out of those deposits, uh, small banks tend to be more relationship oriented uh, and able to offer you know some bigger bank than than bigger banks. Yeah, those are good points. Okay, and we'll continue this discussion when we come back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call seven zero six seven three nine zero seven two five. You're listening to Money MD. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner. I'm here with Gordon Leppard, who is a financial advisor at Richard Young Associates, along with me. 
And uh, John is off today, so uh, he's out there, you know, enjoying some Santa's help winter vacationing yeah. out in Colorado or someplace. I don't know where. Anyway, you know, he's he's having a great time, and so we're filling in here and um, without him. And we have a great topic here that we just are wrapping up here, and that is what's going to happen when interest rates rise as they're rising. Um, I think we know now, you know, they're, right. they're going to rise. They're going to continue rising next year. Um, and so what does that do to your investments? Mm-hmm. And we've talked about that. You know, I mean, the good news is if you're saving money in the bank, um, money market accounts, CDs, they're all going to go up. That's right. So if you're, if you're on a budget and you're following the Dave Ramsey and the Money MD philosophy of getting ahead in life and saving money and having cash built up, it's a good thing. It is a good thing, and, you know, hopefully it's a, a positive sign for our economy, uh, all in all. And usually when the, when Fed start raising rates, it, it usually is a positive sign. Exactly. Now, there can be some things that will struggle, and we talked about that. I mean, you know, there's going to be bonds with longer maturities. That's right, They're long-term bonds. You don't want to be too long in bonds and any kind of fixed instrument like that. Um, you know, stocks, they may or may not struggle but uh you know eventually i think they'll they'll celebrate it well i I was gonna say initially we might see a little bit of a pullback and then hopefully uh, things will continue to head in a positive direction after that yeah it's widely expected and history shows it's about a 50 50 as to whether or not stocks continue to go up or whether they they pause and, and pull back some during the rate raising campaign for the fed and the last point here we want to make is, you know, borrowing costs will rise. You know, um, consumers are going to be faced with higher borrowing costs as the Fed continues to raise rates. Obviously, for home buyers, considering a fixed rate or a floating rate mortgage, it's important to understand how rising rates are going to affect those choices. You probably don't want to lock into a floating rate mortgage in a rising interest rate environment like this. You know, that wouldn't be a smart choice, probably, um, unless you're planning to sell your home the next year or two. I was going to say, and we rarely recommend that anytime, whether rates are, you know, rising yeah. or not. It's a, better, a little bit easier to plan if you can lock into a fixed-rate right. mortgage, you know. And the most immediate impact um, will be on loans tied to short-term floating-rate debt, like credit cards and short-term loans. You're going to see those increase so the bottom line here is while nobody can predict exactly what's going to happen as interest rates rise, we certainly look at we can look at history and get a good idea of what to expect. And we happen to be pretty optimistic that markets are going to respond well over time, having this uncertainty behind us about the start of this rate raising campaign. Um, but it may take a little time for markets to digest the move and to settle into this new dimension of Fed policy. But meanwhile, we would encourage you to just to stay diversified, be careful. Don't lock in any long-term fixed investments during this uh, rate-raising time. That's right. Okay, and that leads us up here to our question of the week. Well, prescription of the week I'm here. Sorry, That's prescription. okay. Hey, prescription yep. of the week uh, from the money doctors. You know, we're here in the holiday season, and now is a great time. Uh, hopefully you have some time off. Still a little planning, you know, for next year. Look at your cash flow plan. Look at the spending plan. Um how things are going to hopefully pan out, and just put put something in in place because you know without a map or a guide, sometimes you know you're just off for a lonely walk, and uh, this this could be some good time uh, to do a little planning for 2016. Yeah, that's a great great prescription. All right, and that leads up here to our last topic, and that is before giving, check out the charities you give to this December here. Um, 
and their policies on privacy. That's, that's right, Steve. Really take some time here and and vet uh, the different charities that um, you know that you want to give to. Ann Carnes of the New York Times just did a great article here. Uh, kind of lays out some some ground rules and some things to consider. Uh, you know, as as we go through this time, you know, as the year draws to a close, many people are considering charitable donations. Um, but before writing that check or clicking, you know, the button to make an online donation, it's best to make sure that we do a little bit of homework. Uh, American charities receive about a third of their donations during the holiday season, according to um, BBB Wise Giving Alliance, which uh, evaluates nonprofits. And there are now more ways than ever to donate via social media or mobile apps and all kinds of other ways. But that also means that there's more ways for questionable organizations to solicit money as well. And even legitimate charities uh, vary in the way that they actually protect donor privacy. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, some charities, for instance, may trade or sell donor contact information to other charitable organizations. Right, right. Or to marketing companies to, that sell donor lists as a way to generate revenue. Um, that's why after making a donation, you may start receiving emails or, or mail mailings or telephone calls from groups that you've never heard of. So, you know, I mean, the transfer of the information... That information puts off a lot of donors, um, according to the vice president here of Charitable Navigator, which ranks charities on various criteria, including their privacy policies. So, you know, donors give money to one charity, then out of the goodness of their heart, all of a sudden they start feeling bombarded. Yeah, I hate when that happens. Yeah, they just get swamped. Yeah, I mean, you feel like sometimes immediately after you sign up for something or give give money somewhere, all of a sudden, your your email address has been passed out. I hate that feeling. Well, and, and that's why we're talking about that. You know, make sure you check. You know, uh, some charities they've sold information as a form of fundraising, uh, which you know some people they see kind of as a positive. But by allowing a group to sell your contact information, you're in effect increasing, you know, the impact of your dona- donation. Not everybody always sees it that way. You know, so it's important to. Uh, to know the revenue stream for that charity and, and know how that money's being used. Um, but, you know, this uh, guy, Daniel Bar- Barakoff, he said charities should um, make their policies very clear so that donors can make an informed decision uh, because this is a personal preference. You know, when you're giving to a charity, this is something that, you know, you're doing hopefully out of the kindness of your heart. Yeah, so to reduce the chance of having your information sold, check out the organization's public uh, profile on a charity, uh, the Watchdog site. There's called Charity Navigator is one of them. Right. Another one is BBB Wise Giving Alliance, mm-hmm. as we just mentioned. Both right. they factor in the don the charity's donor po- privacy policy into the reports, and uh, Charity Watch is adding the privacy criteria early next year. So you know, visit their website directly. Um, see if the privacy on the donors uh, is on their website, and if it's easy to find and clearly stated, make sure that the policy is specific to donors and it's not just some general website privacy policy information. That's right. The site should say whether it sells donors' contact information or not, uh, whether it does so only with the donor's permission. Uh, Charity Watchdogs, they, they say, you know, if the site has an opt-out policy, be sure to opt out if you don't want your information traded. Uh, that's that's definitely important to, to see. Uh, doing some research before you donate can also help decrease the chance of becoming a victim of swindle. 
you know, the attorney generals in Nebraska, they they highly recommend that you uh, you vet some of these um, these charity um, groups, and especially ones that aren't as well known. Here's some questions real quick uh, to answer about protecting yourself when making a donation. Does the size of my donation make a difference in how my personal information is treated? I think the answer is yes. You know, they, they, uh, charities, just like anybody else, tend to take care of people that are important to them. Sometimes it so, does. Yeah. I mean, that's true. So they say here, this watchdog group says you're given $5 here and there tends to increase the odds of your information being sold because the charity may not consider that an important source of sustainable funds. Or the charity may seek to augment the small donation by selling information to raise more money. You know, so it makes sense to concentrate your giving on a few more reputable, well-managed groups that you may feel more strongly about. And that you might have a relationship with. Yeah, and it helps maximize the impact of your money. You know, it's it's not like the stock market where you want to diversify a portfolio here. That's, that's right. <laughs> uh, all right, and here's another one, Steve. Where can I where can I check the tax exemption status of a charity? Yeah, that, that's a good one. You know, the IRS actually maintains a searchable list on their website, um, so you can you can go straight to the IRS's website, I believe, and and check you know their tax exempt status, and that's a great thing to check. Usually on their website, they should have their tax-exempt number on the charity's website. And the last one real quick says, can I donate anonym- anonymously and still receive a tax deduction? Yeah, and the, and the answer is yes. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, there are something called donor-advised funds, which I'm very fond of, where you can donate money or highly appreciated securities That's to. Right. That's a great and, way to do it. And you can avoid capital gains tax, and then and you can anonymously have those funds directed to any charity you want to. You don't have to have your name attached to that, so that's an anonymous way of doing it, and it's a great way of doing it. That's right, and this this article isn't here to scare people. It's just to inform people about how to give wisely, you know, during this time. Yeah, I mean, you just want to check out a charity before you give to them. I mean, there are a lot of bogus charities that pop up all the time, you know, whenever there's some crisis somewhere. That's right. So you got to be careful. Check it out. Now, another thing to check out, of course, is their privacy policy. Do they sell your information? Um, so you just want to do your due diligence before you give out money, you know, during this this, uh, during this time. season. That's right. That's a great point. Thanks, okay. Steve. All right. All right. Well, this has been this week's edition of MoneyMD. Um, tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. Do check us on our website, moneymd.net. Email us your questions. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us directly at info at moneymd.net. And also you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates, 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend and a Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Ladies and gentlemen. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed local provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Do me.